Welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. I am so excited today. I have Kathy Sedeo, an applied animal behaviorist and owner of Bright Spot Dog Training, here to talk with me today about a a topic that's really near and dear to my heart and also near and dear to Kathy's. It's the idea of worth and how we all have value just as we are. So thank you so much, Kathy, for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk to you, Colleen. I respected and loved your work for so long. I literally carry your books around with me on kids and dogs and, you know, um, suggest them to at least half the new consultation clients I meet with. I think they're real gold mines. So how cool to talk to you in another context today. Well, thank you so much for that. I went to Clicker Expo recently and saw your session about, mark my words, and the way we talk about each other sometimes and sometimes about ourselves. And you brought up so many fascinating topics that all resonate back to your book, Plenty in Life is Free, that I really wanted to dive deeper on some of this. I think for many pet professionals, The idea that animals have worth is a no-brainer, and one of our frustrations is when we perceive people aren't seeing animals as having inherent worth. Is that how you would see it also? Yeah, I definitely do. There's a huge disconnect there. And then we get into where we judge other humans so badly and sometimes forget that they too have worth. Yeah, it's all all of the same cloth, right? This whole Mm -hmm. judging ourselves and practicing that habit of, you know, considering ourselves to not have worth, it's not only damaging on its own, of course, but then it infects everything we do in our work with humans because no matter what we're doing in training dogs or in the vet profession with dogs, we're, we're got our main point of contact is with the humans in those dogs and cats' lives. And so it, it really trips us up in the work we're so empowered to do out in the world when we're yeah, not extending our ethic of unconditional positive regard that we have so effortlessly with the non-human animals. Really, it's just a matter of habit with us that we extend it even to the really bad dogs, those mm-hmm. aggressive dogs that show up in my office. I have no problem reinterpreting their behavior as a you know, as a result of a poor training history or lack of socialization or trauma or I thought. 15 stories I can make up immediately right. to explain that dog's aggression. But boy, it's so much harder for me to have those same explanations for that difficult, argumentative, stubborn client uh, who's in my office, or worse, the colleague whom I disagree with really deeply on training methods and have those real um, concerns mm-hmm. about the lack of great training methods out there, but I can really indict, vilify that trainer in a in an instant. I have that habit really fluently in me. So I've got to really be mindful of what I'm doing and uh, in extending that ethic of unconditional positive regard to the human animals uh, that we're in contact with every day in our profession. Yeah, it's really so hard, I think, because our brains have the negativity bias. It's so easy for us to notice what's wrong or different in in our busy, judgy brain and to just label and decide this is it and then make up the story behind it. It happens in a flash, right? Yeah, it's it's amazing yeah. um, how how powerfully we get attached to whatever fits uh, whatever fits the the information we see. We don't care if it's accurate or not. We just care if it fits. So we're like, yeah. 
clearly you're selfish and indulgent and stupid and unwilling to learn new things. Ta-da, my brain is happy. And Colleen, in in a flash, like Mm -hmm. it's effortless. I have that habit so fluently. It's just, it's sort of amazing. I'm, you know, I'm late 50s and I feel like I've had five decades of rehearsal of this snap judgment of being able to pinpoint for you exactly where your flaws are because I've been doing that for a long, long time, right? Yeah. (laughs) But unfortunately, it makes me do it for myself as well. And I just... It's not a great, happy, fulfilling way to live, right? No, not at all. I think Brene Brown was the first place that I I was introduced to the idea of when you're judgmental of someone else, it typically points out a spot that you have some insecurity about. And that if it's something that you're completely secure and comfortable with, you tend to be a little bit more magnanimous in in coming up with reasons why someone else has made a different choice. But we're like, oh, look how she's dressing or look what he's doing or how they drive. And these are areas that we would never want anyone to think we were doing poorly because we're so busy covering up our our bad spots that no one please no one ever see my flaws so it's real easy to to jump into this judgment aspect but then the idea is you know like am i worthy do i have value do i need to earn it you know how do how do we decide that each of us just as we are is worthy of that unconditional positive regard i know it's such a deep and profound topic it's it's pretty much everything, this idea of earning our worth or earning love, mm-hmm. which seems to me like an oxymoron, right? That mm-hmm. love is gratuitous and free and not conditional on our behavior, which for trainers is a particular paradox. Mm-hmm. I think it's a paradox for everybody that true love is unconditional. But for trainers who are constantly linking consequences to behavior, we set up those contingencies. We're all about them. Mm -hmm. It really the face of that for us to go, yeah, but worth non-negotiable. In your existence, you are worthy and nothing you do can change that. That seems like heresy. That's just crazy talk, right? (laughs) That you, as the worst person you could ever imagine, has innate worth. I don't know. It took me a really long time to even begin to begin to dip my toe into the water of this huge concept. And uh, I, I can't see another way to live now that it's part of my ethic and my spiritual underpinnings, right? That doesn't mean I can live it at every moment. I'm challenged. Every day, I I joked at the Clicker Expo presentation you were so kind to attend just in the last few days that, you know, it's Lent now for us Christians, and, you know, we tend to give up something Mm -hmm. for Lent, and I always joke that I want to give up judging others for Lent, and I can't make it through 60 seconds. I mean, I really can't. Like, once I'm aware of how much I'm watching others for their flaws, that nitpicking that primates excel at nitpicking, like we pick each other's nits, Mm -hmm. and I can't turn it off. I can't turn it off. (laughs) What a terrible um, behavior to practice. 
right? Because then I just get really fluent in that habit and yeah, it's hard to turn it off. Right. And so then we have to, to move toward the whole awareness piece. And my brother always goes, rejoice. It's an opportunity to practice. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, that's why I had the frustrating client today because yay, an opportunity to practice. Look, wasn't that a gift? <laughs> You're making me laugh because, oh my gosh, you must have been in our head. Um, just uh, this past weekend at Clicker Expo, another faculty member, Sharad Patel, mm-hmm. actually watched me having quite a, a difficult interaction with someone. And, and and to make a very long story short, after it happened, and I was kind of frustrated, he looked at me and he said, wow, you just leveled up. Meaning we had had a conversation about it's like a video game. So when you have a really difficult interaction with a person, you get to level up when you get through that in a bit of a more mindful way. Mm -hmm. In a perfect saintly way? No, 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 no. Just in a bit of a better way because we're celebrating approximations, right? Susan Friedman's great line. I did a little better at it this time, right? So I'm with your brother. Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's now become a family nomenclature where we just go, oh, boy, it was a, we got to rejoice a lot today. Um, and we know that it was a tough day. <laughs> so much rejoicing. Um, but I like the leveling up idea. I mean, because, right? because it really is the idea of that the more we do it, the easier it will become. And and sainthood is a little out of reach for most of us. We are yeah. we are all pretty pretty flawed. But when we when we can have a little bit of self acceptance of that and a little self compassion for that, then it becomes a little easier to have the acceptance and compassion for the others as well. I think sometimes when we're holding back the compassion on ourselves, we really hold it back on others too and we don't even see how they're tied. I absolutely agree. That idea that you can have a little bit of a lightness or sense of humor around our all all struggling with this, Mm -hmm. it's very recent to me that I can even think to say to somebody, oh, that was really awful. I'm sorry, (laughs) what just came out of my mouth? Can we do that over? Like, really, I'm practicing, and can you help me with that? Because Mm -hmm. we're all in it together. We're all connected. Yeah. It's such um, a great opportunity, but it's a lifelong kind of pursuit, right? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It is a lifelong pursuit. And I think that it's freeing if we can look at it that way to to just say, yeah. you know, I, I am working on this and that's okay. But being aware that there's something here to work on is, is so valuable because we are so wired for judgment and negativity that I think many, many people are just running through their lives in cranky mode, um, partially because yeah. of the stress of modern society and partially because our brains are wired for that. Yeah, I agree. And if you have any sort of history of dysfunction in your family, which I, you know, certainly have some, you end up having this perfectionism as a goal. Mm -hmm. And really, for me, it's been a learning process for me to be, uh, I heard someone refer once to aspirational imperfectionism. And I'm like, that's me, I want to aspire to embrace. I'm flawed and imperfect. And that's great, right? Leonard Cohen's great line, the cracks are where the light gets in. Mm -hmm. And so it's funny, over the weekend, you know, my, my MacBook, 
died. It has a crack in the screen. And I found out that same day my front tooth has a crack in it. This is in the middle of Clicker Expo where I'm teaching, right? The computer's cracked. My tooth is cracked. And I started laughing. I'm like, the universe is trying to tell me cracks are okay. It's where the light gets in. <laughs> Imperfection. It's okay. It's what we deal with. And yeah, it's, it's part of how we develop that compassion. Or at least it has been for me. Yeah. And I've, I've always loved that quote about the cracks are where the light gets in. I think it's really um, beautiful because it gives us another way of looking at at some of those really difficult times. And it's true. It's really it's it's really true. I did a session in a, in a vet clinic and we were talking about a day that you felt really good at work and they were all sharing pretty tough days, you know, significant challenges. And then we worked together as a team and they got through it and the end result was pretty good. And we were kind of talking about that. These were difficult moments. These were moments when you had to show up and work hard. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't just everything went smoothly. And, you know, it was the challenging client or the difficult moment. And that mm-hmm. is where we start to see our sparks of what makes you unique, what makes you different, what makes yeah. you special is in these moments of difficulty. I agree. You know, when, when I was younger, I used to think, I just want comfort and ease and I want things to go well. Mm-hmm. And I want, that's, my soul now doesn't scream for that. My soul screams for you're unique and your authenticity comes through in moments of some challenge, right? We don't want to be completely overwhelmed by nothing's going right in our life. I have incredible empathy for that. I've been in those periods in my life where all this kind of talk you and I are having just sounds kind of facile and Pollyanna, Mm -hmm. right? We don't want to be flattened with no resources. Weirdly, I also don't want to be sort of smack dab in the middle of my comfort zone where everything's easy and I have nothing that calls me out of myself to bring, you know, my unique contribution to some situation. I I don't know. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It it kind of actually, to get a little sciencey here, makes me think of contra freeloading. You know, that we like to work for it. And um, since not everyone will know that term and you're the expert, why don't you tell us what contra freeloading is? (laughs) Contra freeloading is this like amazingly, weirdly counterintuitive uh, phenomenon that many animals, we see examples mostly with mammals, but it goes beyond just mammal species, um, when given a choice, will choose to expend effort to do behaviors for a reinforcer like food, even when that exact same reinforcer is available freely for no behaviors. So sort of the stereotypical example I have in my head is a video of a squirrel working really diligently at opening a little wooden puzzle box. It's a little complicated. Squirrel's got to figure out exactly how to arrange the latch to get out of that wooden box a single peanut when there's a bowl of peanuts right next to the squirrel. <laughs> and it seems like that just flies in the face of any kind of common sense. But when you look at some of the research and explanations for that, it goes into the fact that there's probably more conditioned reinforcers in the process of interacting with the environment. Uh, Dr. Susan Friedman's amazing explanation of we are born to behave That's what we do. Our behavior is a conversation with the environment around us, and the environment gives us feedback in the form of consequences. And that feedback helps us adapt our behavioral repertoire to the current environment. It's an incredibly elegant system 
But it actually has this implication that not behaving, just getting everything sort of handed to us on a silver platter and our grapes peeled for us is not really fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Now, this runs the risk of saying, oh, if we're born to behave, then everything that's good in our life should be a contingency on our behavior. And then we're right in, back into nothing in my degree, <laughs> which no. I am not a big fan no, of. No, 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 no. to try to explain that's not true. But the opposite is also untrue, that everything for free without expending any energy in our behavior doesn't seem to lead us to be really fulfilled and happy. So we behave, right? That's we what behave. we do. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting idea, just like how we, we like to have a challenge and we like to rise to the occasion of something, whatever that might be, and, and have a little bit to think about and to do. Right. So I can see that whole idea of, you know, the older we get, the more we enjoy the the process of, okay, let's figure that out and try to find find a way to wrestle with some of these things that keep floating around in our heads. Um, we like it to be a little bit more interesting and challenging. If we can say, I feel like the big piece of it for me has been, if I can say that in my learning and failing at these difficult conversations with my own clients and colleagues, if I can say, I still belong here, I still have worth. Mm-hmm. So that worth piece as being non-negotiable, not in my hands, already part of my divine DNA in there no matter what I do, which again is a, is a big ask if you've never sort of looked at life this way. To me, that's a fundamental piece of being able to feel free enough yeah. to be yeah. able to do this experimenting and growing and trial and error in terms of how am I going to negotiate relationships with, frankly, colleagues, and I use the word with air quotes that you can't see me doing, (laughs) who are abusing animals. Mm -hmm. So how do you say, wait a minute, that does not extend, that ethic of unconditional positive regard absolutely does not extend to the trainer using incredibly punitive methods. You, You can't have your ethic extend that far. But I have to, because I'm convinced that the only way anybody learns is when they're given the respect and love to be able to admit they don't have the best behavior repertoire now. We tend to use shame, thinking this is going to be a great way to change someone's behavior, and shame is toxic for others and us, and it's Oh, if you even just think of a shameful situation, like right now I'm having a flashback and like my whole body just curls up and cringes. Shame is is going to kill us, right? So when we say, well, that's the way I'm going to get that trainer to change his or her behavior, we're deluding ourselves. We get each other to change by embracing and supporting and loving and forgiving through all the mistakes we make would be my experience. Now, this does not mean I'm great at this, Colleen. This is not me bragging. It's me <laughs> inspiring, right? It's it's an aspiration that I have. It is it is an aspiration, and it's a hard one at times because it's very easy to come up with the with the story that is so negative. I started training in 1991, and I gave every student a choke chain, and I taught them how to use it. And I look back on that, and I'm horrified. I'm horrified, but that's what I was taught. And that's what right. I understood was the way that you teach it. And 
if someone had said to me, you're, you know, a horrible person right. for abusing dogs and, and doing this, I don't think I could, I think I would have stopped training because I probably would have been able to see that piece, but I wouldn't have been able to learn the new, better ways right. because I would have been so shamed by that. Um, and I think that's that's a real challenge because I don't know. I, I, maybe they exist, but I've never met someone who's like, I'm going to go out and ruin everyone's day today. I'm going to go out and be mean on right. purpose to right. everybody, human right. and animal. And we act like people show up at work determined to ruin our day, you know, like, right. like that's not anyone's morning goal. <laughs> I told you about this quirky old book. I can't believe of all the books I'm going to mention. I'm looking at it right now on a bookshelf. I'm in my study and it's it's quirky. It's not a training book, but it's uh, Laura Huxley's, I think she wrote it in 1963, but the title is so fantastic, You Are Not the Target. Mm-hmm. And it is a collection of exercises, quite pioneering for 1963, Laura Huxley was, um, Aldous Huxley's wife, um, exercises that you would do to be able to get beyond the belief that the world is out to get you, mm-hmm. because we sort of have that, um, you know, presumption that people are, you know, Brene Brown's wonderful line, people are pissing you off intentionally, right? <laughs> this is, yes. You, you want to just be able to say, that's not true, but we go through our life and go, nope, it's all about me, and that people are out to make me unhappy. And when you just said before, um, you made me think, we would say to animals, you're 100% obedient to your learning history. Whatever behavior I'm seeing in the dog in front of me right now, we easily say, gosh, this is a result of your learning history. Mm-hmm. Yet with that human, we definitely have other explanations than you're doing whatever has been functional for you in the past. And some of that behavior is pretty awful, yeah. but it has worked for you and you don't have an alternative yet. Right, to hold right. out for you that, that wonderful yet we're all learning and growing, and can I bring my best self to this situation so I can help you? Because it's in my own best interest. It's sort of, it's not only for you, it's not just I'm being Mother Teresa, it's for my own self. We're all connected, mm-hmm. and you learning is helpful to me. I don't know. It, yeah. It's that idea of going with the learning history explanation, which we're good at us trainers. Mm-hmm. Wow. I have to like really allow myself to try the experiment of extending it to this client who will not listen to me, will not do what I ask. We mm-hmm. say the term non-compliance all the mm-hmm. time, right, with our clients. Hey, what's going on in this person's life that this is not true? How can I be a better teacher and consultant to make it possible? So I just had, I have to tell you an example of this. It just happened yesterday. So I was pretty jet lagged coming home from Clicker Expo in Washington, D.C. late Monday night, but I, Tuesday is my busy day at my consultation office. And I decided I would only have appointments with long-term clients. I didn't want to have enough brain cells to, like, work with a <laughs> brand-new client. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I knew that my long-term clients would understand I was a little bit tired. And so, interestingly, one of my longest-term clients, they, she and her husband, carrying her husband, have two uh, adolescent pit bulls they've recently adopted from this uh, Seattle shelter. I've worked with them with their previous dogs, but they've got, they've got their hands full into lovely, energetic uh, young pit bulls. And so what they told me is, gosh, when you were out of town, we had an experience of a contractor coming over to our house. We decided that it would be a good time uh, for the girls, the two pit bulls, to be socialized to strangers. So we used it as a chance 
for them to go say hi to the contractor. I already oh. am not loving this story. Oh, either. yeah. You call <laughs> so, of course, nothing bad happened, but the, the people barked and jumped, and the contractor was a little worried, and they said to me, I, we don't know what to do. That was like a great training opportunity, and because they failed so badly, we now realize they're never going to be good with visitors. And I'm telling you, these are people I've worked with for a long time. It's like, I have to go, wait a minute. You know, you guys both go to the gym really often. What if I handed you a 50-pound dumbbell and I asked you, Carrie, to do a curl with that and you couldn't? Would I say that you're really awful at physical exercise? You really suck at that? And she started laughing. She's like, well, 50 pounds is really heavy. I'm like, I know. That was too difficult a trial. Can let's think of three ways we could make it easier next time. And so we did a little brainstorming. It sounds very sort of simple for trainers listening there. But to me, the surprise was how quickly they went from a single failure in a sort of poorly arranged, you know, mm-hmm. antecedent arrangement was not great there. We can do better, too putting that failure inside these two dogs and they will never be good at it, right? We want to be able to go, wow, we just need the right learning situations and we can all. So that that term, yet. So when she said, they're really bad with visitors, they're never going to be good at this. And I said, they're not good at it yet, right? We're changing, we're growing, we're learning. That's what trainers embrace, the power of learning. And I think yet is such a powerful word for the growth mindset that once people hear it and start attaching it to things, it it works in so many situations. I'm not good at this yet, you know, and it, it completely changes the emotional impact on some of these statements. It's no longer a judgment. It's more of a, a challenge, an opportunity, a, a way to explore and move forward. I've started using the word yet or until now. So someone would say, Mm -hmm. you know, my dog has been really uncomfortable with strangers. I said, up until now, just that idea of giving a little air and space to the behavior and not making it so etched in stone. I don't know. So both those phrases are fairly new to my regular conversations I have with clients just to say, we are not the geneticists who say, it, that behavior is in the genes and it's not moving. We're the, we're the folks, we're the profession that says, oh my gosh, learning is astonishing. You know, at Clicker Expo, uh, Dr. Susan Friedman gave one of her presentations on the learning planet, which explores like, oh my gosh, the breadth and depth of learning in species. Like, I, I can't even wrap my mind around plants learning these amazing things and and animals that start off as animals and turn into plants and I mean just cockroaches doing agility. We watched a video <laughs> of a cockroach doing an agility course. A- astonishing. So we go, yeah, we're the folks that embrace the power of learning. But maybe one of the most challenging places that goes is to say, Yeah, I can learn different communication habits with the humans. I can take my skills that I use with positive reinforcement with the animals and include the human animals in that group too. But no, I'm not going to be very good at it to start off with because no one's ever taught me this. I've never had an opportunity to learn this and to practice it and to be a beginner at it. So I think we all as professionals could make a kind of a pact. We could make an agreement and say, let's all try to level up on this because That's how we're convincing that there's better ways to train animals. It isn't through preaching and finger pointing and shaming, which I have done all of those 
recently I've done all of them. This is not like in my early career. I'm not proud of it. But that's my go-to habit. And I have to sort of use some energy and mindfulness to say, I choose to do it differently now. I really want to have influence. And this great line from Martin Luther King Jr., you have zero influence over anyone who can detect your contempt. Mm-hmm. When you have contempt for someone, you have zero influence with that person. And Colleen, we are good at detecting contempt. Mm-hmm. We think when we're having contempt for someone else, we're hiding it very well. We aren't hiding it at all. We all know the eye roll yeah. and that look that comes. And so to say, I've got to manage my own like, sort of knee-jerk contempt for trainers in my area who are hanging dogs as a matter of routine in their 10-week course curriculum, not even hanging dogs contingent on behavior, which would be horrible enough. They're just doing it as a matter of their curriculum to show the dogs who are boss. This is still happening in 2019, which is absolutely beyond me. And my first response to that is deep contempt. But you know what? I want to have influence. So I've got to figure out how to go beyond that. And boy, I need help to do it. So that's why your work that you're doing in linking us all together in these efforts, but I want to be a sole practitioner trying to do this hard thing. I want to have colleagues who will support me in the difficult work that you and I are talking about. Yeah, and I think that matters so much, having people to to support you and to talk about some of this with. When you were talking about that trainer and the hanging, I was very aware of my stomach. Like I immediately became nauseated as you were speaking. And I think what happens for many of us is that we sometimes forget our, our bodies are a piece of, of like we're just like brains with packages that move us around. <laughs> and so much of what is happening in our bodies is really relevant. So to be able to like catch that first sensation of, oh, she's making me sick, <laughs> just telling yes. the story, then yeah. I, can, I can catch that and say like, okay, but how can I respond when this is how I feel? Um, and sometimes that requires some conversation with someone else to go, oh my gosh, how, how do we come at this and and it's hard. And a conversation that, you know, I mentioned a little bit in my presentation, that we would have an option as professionals to do something other than collude mm-hmm. and complain. Because if I share that story with, with many colleagues, they would be outraged and pile on to attack that trainer. Right. When in reality what I'm most wanting now is someone to hear my heartache and my frustration and uh, support me in keeping that ethic of, yeah, unconditional positive regard even to that trainer because that's the only way that we're going to have the impact that we want. So to have colleagues you could reach out to that would do more than, oh, poor you or, oh, that's really awful or share their story of awful with me. It just gets ugly. It's like a quagmire we all drowned in together. And someone who could just hear me Mm-hmm. support the hurt and frustration and allow me to continue working for another day, right, without quitting and going to do some easier profession. <laughs> right, right. And I'm I'm having this moment of awkwardness because I feel like you've just teed me up to do a great ad and I'm going to do it, even though it's uncomfortable for me. That's what I'm working with now. So I yeah. have groups that are unleashed resilience groups where we 
go through content and positive psychology and talk about how to have these conversations. And I have new mastermind groups where it's a lot of support and wrestling with specific issues that people bring to the table. So both of these options are ways for us to open the conversation and to try to learn some new skills and practice them a little bit behind the scenes and have a chance to say, some parts of my job are really, really hard. And mm -hmm. I still care about this job. And I still want to do this job. But I need someone to fill my cup back up. You and I, goodness, um, such a parallel, you know, I feel like you were such a pioneer um, in sort of the kids and dogs movement. And again, I've used your resources. The, your, your books are in my bag and my gear bag is small. So it just tells you, you take up real <laughs> estate in the work I do, in the little bag I carry to my consultations because of your excellent work there. And how lovely that both you and I, uh, with a you know long training history and having influence in the actual sort of uh, nuts and bolts of training, we both still do that, but that our interest is in exactly the work you just described. And yeah. so yet again, you're a pioneer and an inspiration to me. Because I think that it comes with our being in this profession for a long time and noticing the mm -hmm. great need. So mm -hmm. you're feeling a need in the profession, which I've certainly seen, and I'm so thrilled to hear it. Yeah, it's it's. there's definitely a huge need. And honestly, I started doing it mostly for, for my own self-protection because yeah. I had a whole compassion fatigue burnout of my own. And this yeah. is what I had to do to dig myself back out. And and there are there are tools. There are. Yeah, it's just we got it. Yeah, we've got to find ways to be more familiar with them. Yeah, yeah. and you're doing that. Yeah, and That's you covered cool. some in your session about how to help move forward through some of this. And one of the interesting pieces that that came up was boundaries and how we need to have a few. This is news to me. I mean, it really is. Mm -hmm. I, I was not a boundaried person at all, and I am working on that. I love the work of Brene Brown. I just think anything she does, I could just recommend universally. I love that something's coming up on Netflix with Brene Brown. I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm in because <laughs> she's, she's an amazing teacher on uh, boundaries. The book Essentialism also I mentioned in my talk. Mm -hmm. It's not a training book. Um, Greg McCune's wonderful book. I've read it three times because I really needed that information on you deciding what you're going to go big on in your life. And you say, it's really worth it to me to say no to some things in a really clear and comfortable way, because I really want to say yes to some things my soul is thirsty for. And right. this has been super helpful to me, this idea of um, I, boundaries, not making me be not a very nice person, right? Mm -hmm. That makes me be a super powerful and fiercely loving person when I know what is okay with me and what is not okay, that I've already thought those things through. So that is a work in progress, but it's such a rich area of exploration and learning for, well, at least for me, but I'm betting for a lot of trainers and veterinary staff. I think it really is because there's so many demands placed on people with the emergency. Like if you don't do something, yes. this animal will die. And, and, and that's a horrible spot to be in. It's a terrible, terrible, horrible spot. And it's unfortunately very common. You know, National Lampoon had a cover many years ago. It's quite famous. I used it in one of my presentations a couple of years ago with uh, this. The cover of the magazine is a photo of a dog and there's a gun to the dog's head. And it said, if you don't buy this magazine, we'll shoot your dog. And it's a horrible photo, of course, but mm. that's what I often feel like. Mm -hmm. Clients are 
saying to me when they call, but I need you to squeeze in an appointment because otherwise we'll euthanize the dogs. This happens to trainers, consultants, veterinarians. We, we can't live in that place. I've got always in emergency mode. We can't survive. No. And I need my colleagues to survive, right? It's not just about my survival. I don't want you, Colleen, experiencing compassion fatigue and quitting the profession or much worse, quitting life, mm-hmm. which we all know colleagues that have yes. done the, you know, the, the big quit, so to speak. And, and I don't mean that to be flippant. I, I just mean I really care that you stay in the game in a healthy way because it makes my job in life easier to do so. So we're all sort of extending that helping hand to one another. And yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful way to wrap us back to the whole idea of worth, that that yeah. really we do all have worth and we do all have value. And by supporting one another and uh, taking care of ourselves, we are demonstrating that on a day-to-day basis. You know, um, I'm looking right now. Hang on. I'm going to dawdle just a bit. It's so funny because I'm just unpacked from Clicker Expo, and I'm actually looking up a quote because I want to get it exactly right. So, yeah, yeah, it's Brene Brown's definition of compassion, which I'm sure, Colleen, you've heard, but I'm going to say it one more time. So compassion is a deeply held belief that we are inextricably connected to one another by something rooted in love and goodness. We are inextricably connected to one another by something rooted in love and goodness. And I'll quote Brene Brown one more time. In one of the videos I saw of her, she says, for me, that's God. And for my dad, it's fishing. Mm-hmm. So for me, who is a believer, I want to go, you know what, that's worth. You have divine DNA. Everything created, every creature is divine. And you may say, that's really uncomfortable language for my secular self. Yes, but what is that thing that's rooted in love and goodness that speaks to you, that connects us all? That's where the idea of worth comes from, this unshakable worth that you don't earn, you didn't behave, it's not a badge of merit, you were born with it, and you can't do anything to lose it. That's the big news, right? So I feel like that's the piece that allows me to keep going, oh my gosh, I'm so flawed, that's okay. I'm, I'm beautiful and still learning, and boy, if you can't accept being flawed, it is a burdensome life, and I know it because, yeah, that's what I did for about 30 years. And anyone younger than me or even older than me, it, yeah, do, do something else with all the energy than trying to be perfect because if you're not perfect, you won't be worthy and you won't belong. You yeah. belong. You belong because you're here. That's how you know you belong, and we need you. Right? Yes. Well, you are beautiful and still learning. I find you a huge inspiration, and I could talk to you about this all day, but I know that I can't take up all day of your time. So if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, how could they do that? You know, easiest thing is to go to my website, and my website is my name, com. I promise to try to keep it updated, but you'll find articles and my seminar schedule there. It's probably the best place to go. And I'm really still a fan of... The one book I've written so far, which you mentioned, which is Plenty and Life is Free, mm-hmm. and it goes into, it's a quirky book, as my publisher said. It's a <laughs> bit of dog training advice, and it's a bit of uh, spirituality, and more about this fruitful, it's exciting conversation you and I have just had, which yes. is stepping a little bit out of the bounds of just the mechanics and the science of training, both of which I love, 
but there's a deeper spiritual connection that enriches our lives. It's part of why we're passionate about what we do. So talk a little bit more about that in Plenty and Life is Free. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really can't thank you enough. This has been awesome. Such a treat for me, Colleen. And sincerely, thank you for the work you're doing. It's so crucial, and I'm just thrilled. Unleashed at Work and Home is more than just a podcast. There are workshops, private coaching, and online programs. Sign up for the newsletter at ColleenPilar.com to get resilience tips and other useful information to help protect yourself from burnout and compassion fatigue.